This episode of How the West Was Cast is brought to you in part by Ugly Outlaw Hats. Authentic handmade hats customized to perfection for Western movie fans like you. Visit UglyOutlaw.com to browse their collection. Or contact them directly to have a handcrafted hat designed to your exact specifications. That's UglyOutlaw.com. I got you now! You ain't getting away this time! We'll see about that, you old mud-covered mule! I know what you really want, and you ain't gonna get my handmade, one-of-a-kind, ugly outlaw hat. Quite frankly, it's the best thing I've ever owned. Well, this and that guy's horse. Ugly outlaw hats. People are dying to get one. Howdy, friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. Uh, For the best score of a motion picture that is not a musical, the nominees are... Anne of the Thousand Days, George Delarue. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Burt Bacharach. The Reavers, John Williams. The Secret of Santa Vittorio, Ernest Gold. And the Wild Bunch, Jerry Fielding. Will you announce the winner, Cliff? No, uh, I'm curious, but yellow, please. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. The winner is Bert Backrack for Butch Cassidy. <laughs> I'm deeply happy. I just can tell you that. Uh, it was a knockout picture to work on. And I'm very thrilled. It's a great night. Thank you. <laughs> that was composer Burt Bacharach winning the Oscar for Best Original Score for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And on this episode of How the West Was Cast, we'll discuss some of our favorite Western film scores and movie music. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. And joining us on the show is a very special guest. Hailing from Scotland, he's the charismatic frontman for the musical collective known as Natalie Price. And his latest album is one that listeners of this podcast will definitely want to get their hands on. Titled Frontera USA, it's a soundtrack for a Western movie that doesn't actually exist. Inspired by the great European Westerns of the 1960s and 70s, the record also tips its hat to classic Hollywood Westerns and TV shows like The Lone Ranger and Rawhide. We'll include a link where you can order and download a copy of the album in the show notes for this episode. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce musician Mark Swan. Hello, Mark. Howdy. Howdy, Mark. Now, Mark, we'll talk about your album, Frontera USA, later in the episode. But first, I'm curious to hear about your interest in the Western genre. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Scotland and Westerns don't seem to go hand in hand naturally. So where does your obvious love for this genre come from? 
Well, you know, it's funny that you used to say that, because I think the thing is, is that Westerns are popular all over the world. My favorite type of Westerns are probably the spaghetti Westerns, probably, because the truth is, is I like all Westerns, really, the, you know, the classic stuff, and then all the later revisionist Westerns, and then the prestige Westerns, you know, all of it is really good. But the Westerns that got me into probably was the spaghetti Westerns. Um, I think the image of Clint Eastwood in those Dollars Trilogy films is a, a big attraction for a lot of people. And the music, which we're going to be talking a lot about today, is another one of those big things. It's it's quite rock and roll. And as you know, a musician myself, that seemed like a really good way into the Western. And yeah, so for me, they make Westerns all over the world. They're not all very good. <laughs> they, some of the, the East German Westerns exist. I have not seen them, but I know they exist. Um, I know that they make Westerns in not just Europe, but I think there is even Indian Westerns. I think they dubiously call them the curry westerns curry westerns yeah curry west but um i have seen one of them surely which was barely a western but sure i the, the truth is that the, i think the myth of the west throughout the world is attractive um i don't think you need to be american to be attracted by the ideas of what the west and the American Western stand for. Were there a lot of people in your orbit growing up who were also into Westerns? Or, I mean, for some of us, it's sort of a solitary interest. It's, it's hard to find like-minded people for Westerns, uh, especially people our age. So uh, what about you? What was your experience? Well, as it turns out, my grandfather really likes Westerns, but I didn't know that because mostly he didn't, you know, he's not a an open sharing kind of guy. <laughs> so it wasn't until I sort of discovered Westerns on my own, it was this thing that we could connect on. So it was like, oh, hey, you like Westerns too. Uh, so that was quite nice. But um, but yeah, it would seem to be something I discovered on my own. I guess, you know, through the music, I guess, was one of those things. Um, also, just being a movie fan. You know, I've always loved movies. I think one of those things growing up in Scotland is the weather is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you stay in, you watch movies and, um, you watch enough of them and you find that it's the genres or the things that really stick me. I love horror films as well. And Westerns, it was like, there's something about when an artist is working within certain parameters, working within a genre is it means that they, sometimes the thing that's interesting is they can do subversive things with it, as opposed to something that is trying to be genuinely unique and then can often misfire. So so what are some of your favorite titles, the, the Westerns that you put on over and over again, the, your, uh, the ones that really mean something to you? I'm aware that uh, I, I'm going to be talking at length uh, at a couple of my favorites because they are my favorites mostly because of the music. So with those aside, we'll get to those later. Some of my other favorite uh, spaghetti Westerns are Death Rides a Horse, The Big Gun Down, uh, Hellbenders, Navajo Joe, uh, The Mercenary. Yeah, some of these are, I think that's enough to get on with. <laughs> but those are all pretty good. Most of those, I think, were directed by Sergio Corbucci. I know The Big Gun Down was not, but I think Hellbenders, Navajo Joe, and The Mercenary are all directed by the same guy, the other Sergio. What about um, Hollywood Westerns? You've mentioned a lot of Euro Westerns. Are there certain Hollywood ones that really stand out? Are you like a John Wayne guy? It sounds like you're more of a Clint Eastwood fan, but but maybe both Wayne. And I, I suppose I, I don't think that it needs to be either or. <laughs> and I honestly, there is it, one of the things that's it's for me, it's very obvious why I like Clint Eastwood. And those spaghetti westerns, because they're cool, they're, they're slick, it's it's rock and roll. But I love John Wayne. I just, there's something about, and I can't articulate it well, is there's something about John Wayne that is so compelling. 
he you know um and i i understand the criticisms he always plays the same character you know he's um he's just that one thing in every ro- i don't care that that one thing absolutely does it for me it's the confidence the fact that he's affable but threatening at the same time uh, is the thing that i just i just find john wayne absolutely compelling there's not a I was going to say there's not a bad John Wayne film. That's not true. <laughs> but I think that there is always something good in every John Wayne film. Oh, that's what that's what we like to hear on this show. Yeah, there might, there might not be a bad John Wayne performance, but there may be some bad movies. Yeah. And even the bad ones, I think there's certain scenes. You know, um, one of the ones I like uh, least is uh, El Dorado. Hmm. And I like it because I've seen Rio Bravo and it's better and it's the same film. But... There are great bits in it. Just there's great scenes. If you just took some of these scenes and you know worked on work on the script a bit, that could have been great, and it is great. Excellent, excellent choices there. All, all of the ones you mentioned. So, Andrew, why don't you set the scene and give us some backstory on the subject of today's show? Music has played a vital role in the history of the Western movie, and the genre's use of music has influenced the development of both American cinema and popular music. Westerns have always featured American folk songs. Many of these, like The Old Chisholm Trail or Streets of Laredo, tell of the trials and tribulations of cowboy life and were originally sung by drovers of the late 19th century to soothe herds of cattle or pass the time while riding the trail, scenes later recreated in countless Western movies. Like the recognizable costumes and settings of famous gunfights and cavalry charges that we so identify with the genre, The inclusion of familiar period music in a Western functions as a code that signals to audiences that the images and events they see depicted on screen are historically accurate. John Ford's Westerns, for example, abound with hymns, military anthems, and folk songs. The first major Western movie star of the sound era was himself associated with music, Gene Autry, the original singing cowboy. An established singer and radio personality even before he appeared on the silver screen, Autry ranked first in the Motion Picture Herald's annual poll of Western stars from 1937 until 1942, when he joined the Army. He was succeeded as leading cowboy star by another singer, Roy Rogers, who topped the Herald's poll until 1952. Despite their popularity, though, Autry, Rogers, and other singing cowboys were largely confined to making series and B-Westerns for studios like Republic. While the country and western songs crooned by Autry and Rogers were foundational to the B-Western, A-Westerns were influenced more by developments in the concert hall than on the radio. Beginning in the 1930s, composers like Roy Harris, Virgil Thompson, and especially Aaron Copland began to shape a distinctly American orchestral aesthetic that frequently invoked the distinctive melodies, rhythms, harmonies, and textures of traditional hymns and folk songs. The influence of this trend is strongly felt in the scores of some of the Western's most famous composers, like Dmitry Tiomkin, Hugo Friedhofer, and Elmer Bernstein. Contemporary songs would not become a staple of the A-Western until the 1952 release of High Noon. Instead of orchestral scoring or a folk song, the picture opened with a new song, Do Not Forsake Me, The Ballad of High Noon, the lyrics of which articulate the story's central conflict of a hero torn twixt love and duty, who must face that deadly killer or lie a coward in my grave. Sung by Tex Ritter, a former singing cowboy whose screen career ended in the mid-1940s, the song won an Academy Award and was a commercial smash, as was a contemporaneous version sung by Frankie Lane. The song's success would have a lasting effect on both the Western 
and American cinema more generally. The popularity of Do Not Forsake Me spurred a dramatic increase in the overall number of Hollywood films that featured a pop song over the opening credits, rising from 13% in the early 1950s to nearly 30% by the 1960s, according to one estimate. The rise of the movie theme song also contributed to the decline of classical film scoring. After High Noon, nearly every major Western movie opened with a theme song. The singer most associated with this trend is the aforementioned Frankie Lane, who sang the memorable themes to such Westerns as 310 to Yuma, The Gunfight at the OK Corral, the television series Rawhide, and the Mel Brooks parody Blazing Saddles. Throughout the late 1960s, popular singers like Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, and Dean Martin both acted in and sang themes for Westerns. Martin, despite his decidedly uncowboy-like persona, starred in seven Westerns, including the Howard Hawks classic Rio Bravo, opposite friend John Wayne and my uncle Ricky, with whom he shares a memorable on-screen duet. In subsequent decades, a variety of pop musicians continued to contribute songs to and even compose entire soundtracks for Western movies. Examples are Leonard Cohen for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Bob Dylan for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Ry Cooter for The Long Riders, John Bon Jovi for Young Guns 2, and Nick Cave for The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. The classic Hollywood A-Western film score, with its rousing themes and musical evocation of the landscape, continues to exert a significant influence on music in more recent Westerns. Consider Bruce Broughton's score for Silverado, or John Barry's for Dances with Wolves, or James Horner's for The Missing. Yet, an arguably greater influence has been exerted by a composer more closely aligned with the rock and pop tradition of Western scoring, Ennio Morricone. His famous scores for Italian Westerns made by Sergio Leone, Sergio Corbucci, Sergio Solima, and others, not named Sergio, issued many classical conventions for those of popular music, using electric guitar and harmonica, along with a range of vocalizations and sound effects whistling, yodeling, chanting, grunting, whip cracks, gunshots. The film scholar Catherine Kalanick finds Morricone's musical influence strongly felt in a range of more recent westerns, from Alan Silvestri's score for The Quick and the Dead, to Hans Zimmer's for the animated feature Rango, to Koji Endo's for the Japanese Sukiyaki Western Django. As Kalanick sees it, the at times competing and at other times complementary traditions of the classic western score the B-Western-influenced appropriation of popular music, and the spaghetti-Western orchestrations of Morricone have combined to create a force field through which all contemporary Western film scores must pass. So for this episode, we've each selected two Western scores that we want to highlight and discuss. Most of these scores are available to stream on sites like Spotify and Amazon. So if you want to listen to them after the podcast, by all means, check them out and let us know what you think. Okay, Mark, what is your first Western score? My first choice is Ennio Morricone's score for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. For me, it is the most iconic sound of the Wild West and has forever left its mark on not just movies of this genre, but all of cinema. Listening to the music evokes feelings of mystery, bravery, determination, and strength. 
Westerns often seek to mythologize the Old West. Morricone's music here infuses these myths with a majesty fit for timeless tales of heroes and villains and all the ugliness in between. The making of this musical masterpiece is a fascinating story. To put it briefly, in the early 1960s, Morricone's old school friend Sergio Leone was looking for a new sound to score his first Western. He wanted something bold, something unusual and different, something to match his singular vision. But after listening to a few of Morricone's previous scores, he remained unimpressed. That is, until he heard a cover of an old American folk song Morricone had recorded with singer Peter Tevis. That song's unconventional instrumentation, its galloping acoustic guitar, masculine chanting whistles, church bells, and electric twang seemed to evoke the wild, open prairies of the western landscape in all its beauty, its horror, and its possibility. As soon as Leone heard it, he knew he had found the sound of his movie. The film, of course, was a fistful of dollars, and with each subsequent sequel, the machismo, the cinematography, the story, and especially the music grew richer and more complex. By far the most ambitious score in Leone's Man With No Name trilogy, Morricone's music for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was, by that point in the series, arguably as important as the script and the actors were to the film's success. The score was written before the filming began. This meant that the music shaped what the film would become, as opposed to almost every other film made before or since. During production, Leone would have the music played to the actors on set as their scenes were being shot, to let the rhythm and the tone of the music dictate that of the scene. The two-note motif used in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is the howling coyote wail that is also used as part of the main theme. To differentiate the characters, a unique instrument is used to call out the motif, Clint Eastwood's The Good on pan flute, Lee Van Cleef's The Bad on a low wind instrument, and Eli Wallach's The Ugly is with a human voice. By using the same motif for all three, it unifies each character in their quest for the hidden gold. But by using a different instrumentation, it makes each of them distinct in their moral journey towards that goal. My personal favorite track on the soundtrack for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is Ecstasy of Gold. It is such a powerful piece of music, and it has all the distinct determination and strength typical of Morricone, but with an added sense of impending tragedy that underlines the tone. To an extent, the distinctive sound of these films came out of necessity. Sergio Leone initially wanted the music to be specifically like Dimitri Tompkins' score for Rio Bravo, but this was not an option, based on the budget and the time constraints when making these movies. Electric guitar fills in some of that space left by the orchestra, but also lets the audience know that this is a new kind of western. Not a western for your parents, but a darker, grittier, and more rock and roll western. The Morricone sound is distinctive forever after, and it revealed, for the first time, the darker, cynical side to the freedom that the American West offered. Well, Mark, I am very happy that you chose this score, because if you hadn't, uh, I think our listeners would have stopped listening to the podcast totally if um, we would have gotten some angry emails if this did not make it onto the show as one of our six choices. It's such a beloved score. It's like you said, it's 
possibly the main score of the West right now. I, I think it's it's almost hard to judge the score, for me anyway, because it's so ubiquitous. It's so everywhere. It's just, it's become like an audio meme almost. It's just, you know, it, it's used as shorthand for any, everything. Even in our last episode on the animated Westerns, director Phil Nibblink mentioned how James Horner's score for that animated cartoon was inspired by Marconi's work on this film. Uh, he even did during the episode uh, some of the chants, some of the hoo-ha while I was recording with him, which was kind of fun. Um, so so it is, it's almost like, for me, the soundtrack equivalent of like the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand or uh, the Stone Satisfaction. Like it, it's hard to get some distance for me anyway with this score, but it's just so, it's so original. It's so groundbreaking. Absolutely. I think it's one of the, I, I know what you mean, that it could almost be a cliche. And like all cliches, they, they can be a bit sort of um, overused and tired. And initially, when uh, you first asked to pick two, I was going to go for a fistful of dollars because well, cause it was the first one and because it was interesting. I like the idea that it was a folk song that they made completely different. But like you said, you, we, we couldn't do the show. It wouldn't, you know, we need the good, the bad and the ugly in there. And the other thing I'll say about the fact that, you know, it, it can appear as though a cliche is just listen to it. If you, um, wherever you listen to music, you listen to the score. Okay, you get over that first. Oh yeah, I I know this. But actually, listen through to the score. It's it's incredible. It is. It is an incredible piece of work. Yeah, as somebody who wrote a book about westerns in the seventies, I was often asked why I didn't write more about Italian westerns and their influence on the American western during that period. And the answer is that in general, I think that the influence of the Italian western on the American western, especially initially, is overstated. But there would be, of course, an exception to that, and that would be the music. I think it's difficult to overstate the degree to which this, you know, very atypical Western sound came to define an entire genre, such that it is a, it is a cliche that when you hear those strains of electric guitar, those types of chants, the flutes, the whistles, you think not spaghetti Western. You just think. Western, which speaks, Mark, to something you were talking about in the introduction, that the Western is, yes, set in America, but the genre really belongs to the entire world. I think I think one of the things that, uh, coming off the back of what you're saying, Andrew, is that I like spaghetti Westerns, um, but I will admit that the best thing about them is the music. I think that's quite easy. I think that they don't have the same scripts or the same productions that the Americans could have. But the music was so innovative. And like you say, is that it had a huge influence on what came afterwards. And, you know, I, I think there's, there is the influence of the, um, some of the more surreal qualities that the Italians added to all Westerns that came afterwards. Um, I don't think you ever could have got things like Hang 'em High or High Plains Drifter had Clint not been in those Italian Westerns. But yeah, the music is is easily the best thing about it. And the other thing I think is really interesting about the the Man with No Name trilogy, even though he does have a name in each film, um, I quite like Dollars trilogy. I like Dollars trilogy because that's what it seems to be all about: money. But uh, what was I saying? The thing that I that's interesting about them is that I think they initially were meant to be almost anti westerns. I think that was the idea to, to, to subvert Westerns. But the truth is, is I, I honestly think that they were just so good that now, you know, where we are at this point in history, they're, they're just part of the canon. 
they're just they are just they're not anti-westerns they are just good examples of westerns one of the things that i loved when you picked this score was was going back into it and not just picking the first track on it i think it's the first track that is the one that everybody imitates. That's the classic one that we've all heard on TV commercials. And, you know, every time they want to sell a product with a Western theme, they'll do that opening track. But if you go deeper into this score, which I hope people do, there's a, a track later on called Sundown that I think is really beautiful. It's It has this opening guitar riff, this sort of Spanish guitar that's so moving. Uh, it's really an emotional piece of music. It's not a classic you know what what we think of as the good the bad and the ugly sound it's it's much sadder than that it's deeper than that and then later on there's a track called carriage of the spirits that's another beautiful piece of music this time it that uses this brass trumpet and it mixes that with that haunting female voice and morricone sort of has them swirl and dance with each other in this kind of orgy of of sound also, the, all of those things that you mentioned, like the whip cracks, the coyotes, uh, it was a couple months ago. I live in this place, Echo Park in Los Angeles, and it's named Echo Park because of the surrounding hills sometimes at night create weird echoes. Uh, sound travels strangely there. And we have coyotes who come through the neighborhood. And whenever they travel as a pack at night, you can hear them laughing with each other, especially when they're hunting something. So a couple of months ago, I went out with my recorder and recorded coyotes in the wild, chittering with each other, and they were echoing through the hills around my neighborhood, and it sounded like something out of this Morcone score, and also a little bit of Goblin, the uh, Suspiria score was in there. It had it had this incredibly frightening sound to it, but I can imagine Morcone finding those natural sounds and and being inspired by them uh, and and wanting to to work them into his score it's such a, a great way to to picture him creating using using what's out there in the world the good the bad the ugly Matt, what is your first Western movie score? My first choice is Leonard Cohen's songs in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Now, when I look back at the 25 episodes we've recorded since launching this podcast, I am shocked at how infrequently Altman's 1971 classic has been mentioned. By my count, it's come up only twice in more than two years. The first time was during our interview with director Maggie Greenwald, who named McCabe as one of the primary influences on her movie, The Ballad of Little Joe. And the second time was during Andrew's chat with film critic Joe Layden, where the two of them discussed McCabe's absence from the Cowboys and Indians magazine list of the top 100 Westerns of all time. What shocks me about this is that McCabe and Mrs. Miller is, along with The Wild Bunch, possibly my favorite Western ever. And Leonard Cohen's songs are a big reason why I love it as much as I do. Frankly, I can't imagine this movie without them. They're as intrinsic to the film's atmosphere 
as Vilmos Zygmunt's gorgeous cinematography. Now, we've talked before on this podcast about our aversion to hearing contemporary music in Westerns. Andrew and I are not exactly big fans of that technique, but I've praised the way it was used in some movies, like The Dark Valley, for instance. So I'm a little bit more open to it than my co-host is. Personally, I feel like Leonard Cohen's songs in McCabe work the same way that Bob Dylan's songs do in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. There's a timeless folk music quality to them that sounds right at home in the revisionist Old West. Only three Leonard Cohen songs are actually heard in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but each of them is repeated several times over the course of the movie. The first track we hear is called The Stranger Song, and it's played during the opening credits as John McCabe rides into a muddy mining town in the Pacific Northwest. The song basically functions as his theme throughout the rest of the movie. Although written several years before the film was made, the song's lyrics about a traveling gambler who promises love but who delivers only a memory, fit the film beautifully. In fact, certain lines sound like they were composed specifically for this movie. The repeated phrase, he was just some Joseph looking for a manger, seems to directly reference the abandoned chapel that features so prominently in the film. The second song is called The Sisters of Mercy, and it serves as a musical theme for the prostitutes that McCabe hires for his brothel. Altman splits this song into four distinct segments, and he spreads them across an eight-minute montage of the woman's arrival in town. By far the lightest track in the movie, the lyrics have a cheeky sense of humor as they playfully mention women laying down beside you to bring comfort and to sweeten your night. And finally, there's the beautiful Winter Lady, which functions as Mrs. Miller's theme. Altman introduces it as a ghostly echo barely audible as Constance Miller crosses a snowy bridge alone at night. Later, the film ends with this haunting song, as Miller numbs her pain with opium while her lover and business partner lies dead in the snow nearby. It's a heartbreaking moment, made infinitely more powerful by Cohen's poetic songwriting. Now, for the record, I have no problem with Joe's exclusion of McCabe and Mrs. Miller from his list of the top 100 Westerns ever made, and I also don't have an issue with its exclusion from this podcast, but here we are. And uh, given how much listeners to the podcast email us and tell us they enjoy it when Matt and I disagree, maybe we need to do a full episode <laughs> on this terrible film at some <laughs> at some point in the future. Um, so putting that uh, aside, um, it's, it seems to me there's there's maybe a connection to the good, the bad, and the ugly in the sense that and, – and Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the the Cohen songs pre-existed the film. Right. And Altman reached out to Cohen because he was a fan of his first couple of albums and asked if he could take existing songs. So, is it the case that the songs – it may be even ones that weren't included in the film – uh, shaped the either the narrative or the visual style? Yeah, all three existed – Previously, they were on his first album. And like you said, Altman was a huge fan of the album. And in fact, one of the reasons why the songs sort of meld so well with the material, at least according to Altman, is that he had listened to this album so often prior to making this movie that he thinks they sort of bled into his subconscious when he was making it so that he started drawing on this music while he was making the movie and he had no 
thought to use it. It was only during the editing process that he turned to his editor and said, for the temp track, why don't you use these Leonard Cohen songs and, and just to capture the rhythm that we want. And then they worked so well in the editing suite that he reached out to Cohen and asked if he could use the songs. He 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 knew that Cohen was sort of prickly in a, in a way, and so he he sold it as you know. By the way, I just made Mash, and this is this big movie. Uh, Cohen hadn't seen Mash apparently. Instead, he had seen Brewster McCloud, this go- the goofy comedy that he had made before that, and loved Brewster McCloud. So he said, "Of course, you can use my songs," but they're not exactly the same versions on the album, especially the Stranger song. It's a much because the credits go on for so long. He re-recorded it, and there's a long Spanish guitar solo in there that kind of fills out the opening credits as he's riding into town. So it does predate the movie, but they've been adjusted afterwards. Mark, what are your thoughts on this score? I, I, I really like it. But look, it's not about me. I want to know. Andrew, what is the... This is a great movie. What's the, what's the issue? <laughs> what is... <laughs> yeah. Well, Wait, what is, what is, is, it, is it the message? Right. Well, I the, think... The, the underdog? <laughs> what, what, what is it about this, Phil? Big, big business? Big business. Yes, yes. I love big business. Everybody knows this. Um, no, I, I think my, my issue with, with this film and, and the attention it receives is it's, it's lauded for doing things that a hundred other Westerns did much earlier and better. And I also think that oftentimes in some of Altman's films from around this period, not only this film, but also maybe Nashville, some of Altman's other genre exercises into noir or the war film, that he doesn't really understand the thing that he's trying to criticize. And that appeals to a certain type of person, but I guess just doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> really? Do you, th- do you think he doesn't understand Westerns or he doesn't understand country music? Uh, both, I don't think. Uh, really? I don't think, yeah. I love westerns and I love country music and I love those I love those movies. I think the thing is, is that they are I think that they are comedies and they can or or, or maybe not McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, but Nashville is and um, and there's comedic parts of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but I've never felt it was a joke on any on, like uh, like a nasty joke. I never felt it was at their expense. I thought it was I don't know. I think you need to be kind of in the gang to, to get it. I don't think people were watching Nashville, for instance, and be like, ha. Yeah, this this sucks, doesn't it? No, I think you know it's country music fans. They're interested in the characters and you know the, the sort of workings of Nashville. And I think I don't know. I think that's a fair comment. There's lots of people who like Western movies who laud McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I just think that these are things that I've seen before, and I actually do think that his films are kind of making fun of these genres in a particular way i find i don't know not among his best traits when you say that other movies have done the same thing that's true of almost all of story for as long as we've had human beings the the thing that's interesting for any artist is their take on something i honestly think uh, that if there was only five different stories we would still have you know a, a wealth of great art because because everyone's different because a different version of the same story 
can the, the thing that's interesting is how they do it and with McCabe and Mrs. Miller and we're talking about the music here is that, that is fascinating that that just that I I am a fan of Leonard Cohen but I understand that the criticism of Leonard Cohen is that he's fairly miserable isn't it it's miserable music and that's kind of what I love about this movie is that it's it's miserable it's like this you know it's in the snow it's a, none of the heroic or mythological parts of what a great about a western are present here and and yet I don't know it's still in the same way that Leonard Cohen's music does, is it still sort of draws you in, still romantic enough. It's not completely miserable. It's miserable and romantic. You know, I guess it, it it depends on your disposition. But if you enjoy the romance of wallowing in misery, then uh, then I yeah, it's, it's, it's a great movie. It's well a great said. music. Well, the romance <laughs> of wallowing in misery. I like that. <laughs> I don't. I don't have any problem with that. That's sounds great. No, I really like it. One, I, I mean, it is an interesting one because because it is pop music. I think that I think had there been um, a lot of drums and uh, keyboards and contemporary instruments, it would it wouldn't it wouldn't do what it does. But because it is, you know, um, acoustic guitars, it's sort of instruments that still fit just about with the period that it's in. Is why it, I think it still works. It's still folk music. I think is is why it works. I'm always surprised when I hear when I watch the film again how few songs there are in it. I kept thinking it was like an entire album's worth of songs in this film, but it's not. It really is those three, but they're they're placed so deliberately throughout it. I mean, there's other music in the movie, not a score, but there's some diegetic music in there. There is a um, a parlor song that's played on fiddle, a "Beautiful Dreamer." which is such a, a standard. I mean, we all know Beautiful Dreamer. It's like everybody's music box plays Beautiful Dreamer. But it had it had been written shortly before the, the film takes place, so it was still considered sort of a new song, I think. Uh, so we hear a fiddle player playing that. And later on, there's a phonograph playing Silent Night, because uh, it sort of is a Christmas movie in a way. Um, and, and then we also hear a Brahms lullaby at one point, the the prostitutes at one point while they're taking a bath start singing Be- beautiful dreamer as well and and beautiful think about that beautiful dreamer is there a better description of McCabe as a character here's this man whose dreams are so lofty but can't stick the landing he's he's all about you know big ideas but gets in his own way constantly he's he's very much a beautiful dreamer I think so 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 music functions really in in such an interesting way in this film. It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I know that kind of man. It's hard to hold the hand of anyone who's reaching for the sky just to surrender. Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender. And then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind You find he did not leave you very much Not even laughter Like any dealer He was watching for the car It is so high and wild You'll never need to deal another He was just some Joseph looking for a manger He was just some Joseph looking for a manger Okay, Andrew, what is your first choice? 
My first score is from The Gunfight at the OK Corral, released in 1957. It would be downright wrong to do an episode on Western movie music without talking about either composer Dmitry Tyomkin or singer Frankie Lane. The Gunfight at the OK Corral gives us both. Tyomkin arrived in the United States from Russia via Berlin and Paris in the late 1920s, first distinguished himself as a composer for Frank Capra in the late 30s and early 40s. Though he worked in many genres, Tiomkin is best remembered as the composer of memorable scores for a host of westerns, including Duel in the Sun, Red River, High Noon, Rio Bravo, Last Train from Gun Hill, The Alamo, and television's Rawhide. Frankie Lane was a major recording star who had sold over 100 million records when he recorded a version of Do Not Forsake Me. The song led to a short but memorable run as a singer of Western themes in the 1950s, starting with Blowing Wild in 1953 and ending with the theme to Rawhide in 1959, with Blazing Saddles in 1974 as a strange coda, where Lane recorded the theme straight, not knowing the film was a spoof and that copious whip cracks would be added to his vocals. Like Tiamkin's earlier score for High Noon, all of the music for The Gunfight at the OK Corral is a variation on a single theme, which is unusual and not typical of most of Tiamkin's work. At the same time, the score evidences many of the composer's hallmarks, like an overall sense of precision, as well as a sophisticated attention to the relationship between characters and music. I especially like the contrasts in the score between orchestral bombast and some relatively restrained passages that feature understated touches like whistling, the sounds of distant trumpets, and simulated hoofbeats. This ably captures some of the emotional conflicts both between and within the movie's characters. The movie's theme song, written by Tiomkin with lyrics by Ned Washington, offers a fine example of Lane's versatility as a vocalist, showing off the leather lungs for which he was famous, as well as his ability to handle more subtle modulations. Unlike Do Not Forsake Me, which is sung from the perspective of the hero, here, it's not clear whose perspective we're hearing in the song. The song functions more like a Greek chorus, emanating from the point of view of an anonymous observer. As the scholar Corey Creekmere observes, the song is unusual in that it more or less reveals the outcome of the entire film within the first few minutes, and poses questions that the viewer likely already knows the answer to, especially if they're familiar with the story of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. This, Kriegmer argues, conveys how the movie's story is already the stuff of legend, recounted in ballads, with repetition as much a ritual function as a commercial imperative. This is another one, like uh, the Morricone score. If we did not have a Frankie Lane <laughs> score somewhere in here, or a song somewhere in here, we would get nasty letters, because he's, to my mind, he's sort of the... Um, he is to Westerns what Shirley Bassey is to the Bond movies. He's right. instantly identifiable. I mean, she did three of the most iconic scores, and he's just done so many. He is the voice of that. He's, uh, he, he is that period of, of the Western. When you mentioned the way the lyrics tell us things that we already know, the first thing that comes to mind is um, Merle Haggard's lyrics to The Legend of the Lone Ranger, those limericks that we discussed in that episode where that keep filling us in as like this narrator that tells us what we're l literally looking at on screen, except those were so cringy and these are so catchy. Um, the, I mean, you can't 
not listen to the score and come away humming the OK Corral. That that repetition really works so well here. We hear it so often, both the OK Corral and both the Boot Hill, Boot Hill. It's like an earworm in your head, but one that you don't want to get out of there. It, it's it's just great. Um, Frankie Lane is a is a big hit in our house. My daughter says to me, "Is Frankie Lane a real cowboy?" And- <laughs> And I say, yeah, yeah, he is. Um, no, um, I, I, I really like this score. You know, one of the things that's that's great about this choice as well is that from some of the the older, more classical, you know, I, I think of older as anything that's sort of pre sixties in, in terms of sort of film score because it was after the sixties when pop elements started coming into it. But sort of pre sixties, um, one of the things that's great about them is when they're done well is the tunes. It's one of the things that's so uh, absent from so many contemporary films is that the scores, they're just tuneless. It's just a kind of, you know, a lot of drones and um, sort of moods and atmospheres, but they don't have tunes. And that is one of the things I love about uh, the sort of classic era of uh, not just Westerns, but but all of sort of the Hollywood classics. Is the, the scores had tunes and... Um, uh, this one is a really great example of that. Yeah, Tiumpkin was a, a master at that. He's he really is like one of the kings of this era. His music's helped elevate not just great movies that we that we all love, but smaller westerns too. He it was like that final little bit of polish that could mean the difference between uh, um, an average picture and uh, one that you really have to sit up and and notice and and. Like you said, Andrew, there's there's a variety of music that he creates in this. The jailbreak music is is some of my favorite. The barn burning and the shootout stuff is great, but there's some romantic stuff in there too. He's also great at stingers. Those wonderful, like quick, dramatic beats, like when Doc Holliday will throw a knife at Kate and it just yeah. hits the wall. Tompkins' stingers are like uh, you could just listen to it, just a soundtrack of those for. And and get so much out of them. He he really elevates that to an art. It's interesting to me that this score was so unavailable for so long. This um, you couldn't hear it. You could hear the Frankie Lane version everywhere, the song, but the actual orchestral score was was largely unavailable till I think like twenty thirteen or so, when um, an exclusive edition or something came out from La La Land Records, and that was the first time you could really hear it, other than watching the film. So you know it's. Um, uh, long overdue. Yeah, no, it's interesting that I read some reviews of the picture um, from 58, and a number of critics pointed out how similar, not just the song, but the music functioned uh, to the music in High Noon, calling it derivative. So I I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I would imagine that the, the music to Gunfight at the OK Corral was probably overshadowed to a certain degree for a long time. Uh, by high noon, and that might account for some of the disinterest in it over the decades. After prepping this episode and re-listening to this score several times, I also went back and listened to some of the other Wyatt Earp scores that are out there. Uh, and they're a, a bit of a mixed bag. This one is definitely one of one of my favorites. Uh, Cyril Mockridge's score to My Darling Clementine is, is good. It's maybe not my favorite thing about that film. But, uh, I mean, I love the score to Tombstone. I think that's a, a banger of a score. We talked about the score to Lawrence Kasdan's Wyatt Earp on that episode. Uh, James Newton Howard's score is so terrific. But Hour of the Gun has sort of a dud, I think. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, it's one of his few misfires. 
And then the score to Doc, Jimmy Webb's score is, is best forgotten. I think it's not one of the highlights of that film. So, so this one is, is maybe the best of the bunch when it comes to Wyatt Earp scores. Okay, corral. Okay, corral. There the outlaw band make their final stand. Okay, corral. Burt Lancaster as the famous Wyatt Earp. Kirk Douglas as the notorious Doc Holliday. Two men as different as day and night, yet fate linked them together through the violent years. Now you'll see them as they really were, hot-blooded men in a raw and relentless era. Okay, Mark, and what is your second choice for Western film score? My second choice is Louis Bakalov's score for the Italian 1966 cult classic Django. Bakalov was a Jewish-Argentinian musician who moved to Italy in the 1960s to become a film composer. After Ennio Morricone, Bakalov is perhaps the second greatest spaghetti Western composer of all time. Following the artistic and commercial success of Morricone's Western themes, there were countless imitations, and many are brilliant in and of themselves. As it turns out, sometimes the shadow of a thing can be bigger than the thing itself. Each of these Morricone imitations offers a unique take on the spaghetti Western genre. Some draw heavily on classical music, while others incorporate surf rock and psychedelia, and many of them blend country and jazz elements together in creative ways. In regards to Django, Bakalov's creative preoccupations make for a darker, more brooding, and less hopeful sound than Morricone's classic Dollars trilogy scores. Director Sergio Corbucci was a deeply political filmmaker whose best films were about fascism. And that's especially true of Django, which tells the story of a coughing-dragging loner gunslinger who doles out justice to a racist clan of fascists that have a grip over the town on the U.S.-Mexico border. Typical of the Italian westerns of its time, Django doesn't have much in the way of dialogue, so the score takes the lead in telling the emotional story. And thanks to Bakalov's amazing work, we don't need spoken words to tell us who Django is. The music makes it clear who he is. He's a goddamn rock star. The film's opening theme swings and swaggers with a bombastic rock and roll energy. The electric guitar solo cuts through like a buoy knife skinning a pelt, the tambourine marches like a spurred boot, and the heavy piano chord rings out like the saloon player has just stopped in fear of a mysterious stranger that has just walked in. And the title song's lyric translation into English adds a poetically surreal quality to the movie. Sergio Corbucci initially wanted Elvis Presley to sing the title song, but he knew that the king would definitely be out of his price range, so he found an Elvis-like voice in the form of Rocky Roberts, who does a fantastic job of encapsulating the machismo romantic crooner that is as much Italian in character as it is American. The main theme is repeated throughout the movie, but unlike a lot of contemporary films where there is a constant generic score playing unobtrusively under everything, Bakalov uses specific motifs 
which make the music an extension of the character, or a character in and of itself. The way Bakalov scores Django, there is always an interesting relationship between the music and the imagery on screen, and they are not always pulling in the same direction. For example, an exciting action sequence could be accompanied by a menacing slow waltz, or a brutally violent scene could be scored with an upbeat Mexican tango. The counterintuitive technique has been adopted by none other than spaghetti western enthusiast Quentin Tarantino, who occasionally uses Bakalov's music in his own films. In Kill Bill, for example, the Oren Ishii backstory scene is literally accompanied by Bakalov's unforgettable theme for The Grand Jewel. Part of the attraction for Django for me is that it services my own vanity. As a Scottish musician in 2022, making music that imitates the Italian Western scores of the 1960s. These great artists, composers, and directors were also making an imitation of something that they loved dearly. They were creating a bold new European vision of the mythic American West, and in their rough translation, they gave these films, and the music we're discussing today, a distinct character that is, in and of itself, unique and beautiful. Like you said, I always thought of this score as uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly's rock and roll cousin. It really is. Uh, it's it's less opera house and more roadhouse. It's got that sort of dirty vibe to it. I think uh, it's it's maybe less wildly innovative than the good, the bad, and the ugly, where it's where that has just so much going on in it. It's a little bit more stripped down, but it's got this swagger to it that you can just put on in all kinds of contexts. Yeah, and I think it's also easy to put this in a tradition that we've already alluded to. Um, to, to me, one of this this film has one of the great openings in the history of, of Western cinema. You're you're actually presented with a type of image that you you really haven't seen before in a Western movie. Right, the, the specter of the man <laughs> dragging a coffin around. You know, th through the mud in nature. We, we have never seen that before. That's genuinely true. But then you have a song that's, that's asking all of these questions, giving you some information, but then asking, have you always been alone? Will you ever love again? In the way that some of the great Westerns of the past, like the searchers, as I mentioned, pose similar types of questions. So as much as this is innovative, it's also drawing through music connections to an existing tradition of Western movie making. One of the things, the reason why I picked this is because I think it's a good example of, and I don't think it's like really great. That's not true. I do think it is really great. But why I think it is an interesting talking point is because after Morricone, there was so many, so many musicians and artists that were trying to make that sound. So yeah, it, it, if it scores less on innovation, because it is, it, it is trying to copy something. It's just like, okay, that was successful. Let's do that. But the thing that is great about this and, and so many others that I could have picked is that they did, they, they created a genre. You know, if it had only been Morricone, then it would have just been, oh, there's this one kind of sound. Whereas because there was so many spaghetti westerns made, is it created its own kind of genre. Now, you know, the spaghetti western music exists not just because of Morricone, but because of everyone else as well. And I think that Louis Bakalov is, is one of those guys he, because he made a lot of really good ones that, that, that contribute to what develops as a canon. This is another score that I 
recommend that listeners go deeper into. I know everyone loves the opening theme song. Sarah Vista does a really beautiful cover of that on her album. You know, we've heard that song out there before, and it's it's a classic. But there are deeper cuts in there that aren't aren't maybe as um, popular that are so well worth listening to. There's a a track early on called Town of Silence. That's like something out of a horror movie. It uses dissonance in this really experimental way, uh, which makes perfect sense because Django borrows heavily from the horror genre. This this whole emphasis on bloody death and graveyards and resurrection from the grave feels like something out of a Mario Bava movie. It's and a lot of the spaghetti westerns did that as well. They they sort of mingled horror and westerns. So Town of Silence could be the the score for any number of those. You, you could put it in a horror film and it would fit just as well. There's also a track called Saloon, which is really fun. It's it almost sounds like um. A haunted saloon track. It's another spooky one. It sounds as though you're listening to a a player piano in a saloon, but the batteries are wearing out and it slowly starts to warble in this creepy way. It really fits the movie's quirkiness. So there are a lot of cool tracks on this soundtrack beyond the classic Elvis-inspired title song, which is you know iconic. I think there's a synergy happening with the the. The music and the director in this case. So it was Sergio Corbucci and, you know, Louis Bakalov. And I think it's both of them that are, that very much enjoy the darkness. I think Corbucci is even said, I think there's footage of him even saying, you know, his key to success is just violence, gore. He was, he was looking to make the most violent films he could. And I think that Louis Bakalov, it's the darkness. It's, it's like you say, is that this is Western horror is kind of the sound of it. So I think that the where Django works particularly well is that those two things overlap quite nicely. A century ago on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared. A man with a sad, impenetrable face. Django! Django, have you never that man what was his secret it's not important and if i bothered you will you accept my apology he was pitiless in revenge quick to decide and a master of every weapon a man everybody would like to have seen dead Okay, Matt, what's your second Western movie score for today? My second choice is John Barry's score to Dances with Wolves. Now, early on in making Dances with Wolves, Kevin Costner decided that he wanted the film to have a huge orchestral score, one that would complement its epic scope. Initially, he hired composer Basil Poldaris to write the score. Poldaris is, of course, best known for his iconic score to Conan the Barbarian, but Western fans might be more familiar with his score to the miniseries Lonesome Dove. 
Scheduling conflicts, however, forced Poldaris to withdraw from the project, and so Costner wisely reached out to his second choice, John Barry. Now, this was a major comeback movie for John Barry, who had recently taken a two-year sabbatical while dealing with some serious health problems. Although Barry and Costner eventually found their creative footing, there was reportedly some friction early on. Costner envisioned a sweeping cinematic score, similar in some ways to the one that Barry composed for Out of Africa. Barry, meanwhile, suggested a more subtle approach, one that reflected the understated nature of the film's lead character, John Dunbar, a man of few words. Ultimately, John Barry won the argument. Costner was so moved by the composer's rationale that he allowed him to write the music his way, which, of course, was the best decision he could have made. The score took seven weeks to write, which was the longest amount of time that Barry had ever spent on a single project, and out of the many themes he presented to Costner, only one was rejected. That rejected theme was the music for Two Socks, the Wolf. The original Two Socks theme was considerably different than the one heard in the finished film. It was a much brighter and livelier version than the hesitant Two Socks theme that we ultimately ended up with. In interviews after the movie's release, Barry credited Costner's instincts on that theme, saying that he was entirely correct in rejecting the original version. Perhaps the most recognizable piece of music in the film is the John Dunbar theme. It appears more than a dozen times throughout the movie, and it somehow embodies the character's innate honesty, decency, and self-reflection. And then there's the journey theme— a majestic and rolling piece of music that we hear whenever the characters trek across the landscape. And finally, there's the gorgeous love theme that we hear during the courtship between Dunbar and Stands with a Fist. If you're a Western fan who's planning a wedding anytime soon, you might want to consider adding this theme to your official playlist. Just a suggestion. Dances with Wolves is a beautiful encapsulation of Barry's compositional style. It has all the passion and grandeur that we associate with the scores he wrote for large-scale epics like Zulu, The Lion in Winter, and High Road to China. But it also includes gentle moments, similar in feel to the music that he wrote for intimate movies like Somewhere in Time, Indecent Proposal, and Masquerade. Rather than compose traditional Western-style action music, Barry wrote an inquisitive, eye-opening score, one that captures a sense of discovery and possibility. But to my ears, there's also a degree of sadness in the music, a subtle hint that the frontier won't last for much longer. And it's that melancholy note that helps make Barry's work on Dances with Wolves a modern classic. In my introduction, I talked about how one of the things the classic Western film score did was uh, evoke musically kind of sense of the landscape that you would be seeing these epic landscapes and they were made all the more palpable or emotional because of the music. And I think this score, especially the, the journey theme, uh, especially early on is an especially good example of this where you see characters traveling through epic landscapes made all the more so because of the, the sweep and the scale of the music. Uh, as, as I've mentioned in a few episodes of podcast, um, I grew up in a place where uh, a lot of Westerns were filmed, uh, Alberta, including Dances with Wolves. So I, I guess I have a special affinity for seeing some of these spaces uh, portrayed. But th those to me are some of my most favorite moments in this film. Uh, I personally like the John Dunbar theme, but 
I found it because I, I guess I was paying a special attention to it this time around, a little bit repetitive over the course of the picture, but nevertheless, a very classical technique of giving a character a theme and then returning to it again and again and again, which I, I suppose is what Dances with Wolves is about a great man out West. Well, I, I remember on Oscar night when you mentioned repetitive, um, the film won like seven Oscars. So I was yes. watching that night and every time a new person would come up to accept an award, they would play the Dunbar theme over and over again. And I was I was in heaven because Barry is my favorite composer. I've talked about him on the show many times. We talked about his score for The Legend of the Lone Ranger. He was the first composer that I really recognized his music. I had been familiar with the James Bond mo movies and his music there, but I was a kid then. I didn't understand that there were composers for each individual movie. And it wasn't until I saw King Kong, the 1976 King Kong, as a little boy, that I realized this music sounds like the ones in the James Bond movies. How? Why is that? And then I looked it up, and suddenly then I was like, who is this guy? What This guy is part of the team who makes these movies. And ever since then, Barry is just, um, he's in a class by himself. I, I um, feel like we'll never have another composer like him. He's the old school, the old guard. There are great new ones. But he was just a gentleman composer from a different era his string work will never be topped it's it's just fantastic and and his his score in this was uh you know as much as i love basil poldaris thank god he he couldn't work on this movie because um th this is just such a such a special score i think well i i i have to say i wouldn't mind hearing the conan the barbarian version of the score for Dances with Wolves, but uh, I'll I'll give it to you on this one, Matt. I I am a huge fan of John Barry. I think he's um again maybe one of my favorites. Uh, Morricone and then maybe John Barry. Uh, yeah, I I think you're you're right, Matt. Is that he was he was a sort of a, a breed that that doesn't exist anymore. This guy he was the old school. I was watching a not very good documentary about the music of James Bond films, and I've always thought of myself as a Bond fan. But watching this documentary, I realize I'm not. I am a John Barry fan. That, and it really is. It's, it's while he was doing the music, is that was the thing that was interesting, was how he scored the films, how he would write the tracks for it, and then weave that throughout the movie. And, you know, the, there's, there was a bad trend set of using pop songs, a bit like we're saying in these westerns, using just whoever is a hot new pop artist, we'll just get them to do the song, and that'll be what James Bond is. Whereas, yeah... For me, the, it's, it's John Barry was the thing that, that was a very specific period in time where that sound. And then, you know, he had an incredible career in everything he did after he did the James Bonds. Um, so yeah, no, he, he is really great. And it's funny you say he was a gentleman, um, because it, uh, by all accounts, he was, he was a, a difficult man to work with. That's what they say. Um, yeah, I'm, I don't mean gentleman in uh, like a mensch or a loving guy. He, I mean it more like there was a class about him. He's like a, a real maestro. Uh, one of the things I love about him, I mean, we're talking more about Barry than the actual score, but that's fine, is how many different Barrys there were. There's uh, Bond Barry, of course, but then there's um, Romantic Barry, who did some so many beautiful love themes, uh, movies that were just love stories. And then there's Adventure Barry uh, from things like Kong and The Deep. And then you get 
sci-fi Barry with the black hole that doesn't even sound like what you typically think of as a old school John Barry score. It's it's very unique in that way. He also did Star Crash, which maybe is not the greatest sci-fi movie, but the score really helps. And then quirky stuff like his score to Howard the Duck uh, that has this noir elements to it. His body of work is so eclectic in a way and uh, and yet you can still hear signature notes of, of barry throughout all of it maybe not in jagged edge that one stands as its own little you know uh odd <laughs> odd number in there but uh like i said this was his comeback movie he had suffered an esophagus issue i think that was uh, like a crushed esophagus or ruptured esophagus that that's huh. usually fatal from from how bad it was for him. So it was two years there where it didn't look like he was going to make it. And then Costner comes to him with this project. And and then after this movie, he was composing like 18 more films before his death. So he really like had this whole second act in a way after dances, you know, which is another thing that I'm really grateful to with Costner. Costner said at the time that finding the composer was the scariest part of this project of making this entire movie because um so much depended on it and giving up so much control was hard to hand over the job of composing he had no musical ability himself so it was like there's a lot of trust involved there where a director turns the film over to the composer once again the nominees for this award are randy newman for avalon john barry for dances with wolves Maurice Jarr for Ghost, David Grusin for Havana, John Williams for Home Alone. Hard choice. And the Oscar goes to John Barry for Dances with Wolves. First of all, I'd like to thank Kevin Cosner, Jim Wilson, and Michael Blake for their vision and tenacity. My lovely wife, Laurie, Dr. Charles Slanitz, Dr. David Skinner, and Dr. David Cooper, members of the Academy, I thank you. Stay tuned for more Academy Awards with Richard Gere and Bob Hope. Okay, Andrew, and what is your last choice? My second film score for today is How the West Was Cast, or How the West Was Won, released in 1962. 1962 is often described as a pivotal year in the Western's history, seeing, as it did, the release of both The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, John Ford's last great Western, and Ride the High Country, Sam Peckinpah's first great Western. Great as those films may be, for me, the most interesting Western of 1962 is How the West Was Won, an epic portrayal of America's westward expansion told through four generations of the Prescott family, covering 50 years, featuring no fewer than 24 top stars and 2,000 Buffalo, requiring the supervisory efforts of three top directors, lensed in glorious three-camera cinerama, and with a score composed by the great Alfred Newman. 
one of the godfathers of Hollywood scoring, Newman composed scores for more than 200 features and was nominated for 45 Oscars, winning nine. You could make a strong case that Newman's score for How the West Was Won marked the apogee of the classic Western soundtrack tradition I described in my introduction, and that would be fitting. Yet, the music in general, and the rousing main theme in particular, has a self-seriously relentless, almost propulsive quality, as if it couldn't slow down or stop, even if it wanted to. The movie's other key piece of music, Home in the Meadow, a faux folk song set to the tune of Greensleeves and sung throughout the picture by Debbie Reynolds, implores the listener to come away with me to a wondrous land where I'll build you a home in the meadow. While the lyrics are hopeful, the tune is somber. These musical frictions reflect other tensions in the movie. What's always struck me about how the West was won is how the rhetoric of both the sumptuous visuals and the hyperbolic language of its promotion, the mightiest adventure ever filmed, seems at odds with the thoughts and experiences of the characters who are repeatedly disappointed or thwarted, or are ever in search of a promised land they, and by implication we, never quite reach, or perhaps reach only in death. Death hangs over a lot of this movie, uh, which makes sense because there's a a real religious vibe to to some of this music, to some of the lyrics that we hear, uh, and some of the the use of uh, the choral aspects here that feels like biblical in a way. The, the lyrics deal with things like the promised land. There's a lot of uh, sort of heavenly choirs are being used throughout here. I mean, it makes sense that one of the, one of the main Debbie Reynolds plays what Eve is that her name? So yes. there there are some you know biblical connections here. So so that afterlife quality seems like uh, hangs over this movie, as you said. That except for that theme, the op- the main theme, which is about as robust a theme as any Western ever had. I, you can hear so much of that theme echoed in the Silverado theme. I think it's, it's almost a case of plagiarism yeah. at times. You know, I, I thought about that, actually, listening to it. And the difference to me, though, was the, the kind of seriousness, again, of the score for this film. Whereas in Silverado, there's a kind of a sense of uplift or fun that is entirely right. lacking from from how the West was won. Um, and, and that, again, is something that I find really striking about this film, how, you know, in a way, the film is almost pessimistic, in a sense. Again, heroes never really reach that promised land. And then the, the film ends with this you know, kind of interesting montage of, of helicopter shots of contemporary American landscapes, freeways, and then ultimately just takes out to sea. And, and maybe this is the implication that it, it took the death of all of these characters and that Spencer Tracy's narration says almost as much, you know, we needed their bodies in the ground, their blood needed to be shed in order for us to reach, I, I don't know, the nirvana of traffic in Southern California. Uh, <laughs> and then we get that image of just this floating out to sea where it, it actually reminds me of a later film, uh, Heaven's Gate. Right. Where you end with a kind of acknowledgement that this frontier, you know, never existed. So all you can do is kind of drift out to sea and wait to die. One thing we need to talk about 
with this score that I, I want to bring up is um, it's the only film we've watched so far or talked about so far that has an overture. Uh, which is a big part of this score. Um, you know, the overtures are, are really a, a lost art. We, we don't get them very much anymore. Uh, I used to love seeing things like Star Trek, the motion picture when that first opened and it begins with Goldsmith's beautiful overture. Uh, another John Barry one, the, the black hole began with, I remember watching that as a kid and seeing the, hearing that overture really sets the mood for the film you're about to watch. And this one is an interesting overture. It's, it's not one piece of music that we often get in an overture. It's, uh, a medley of several of the songs that we'll be hearing later on in the film. So it, it primes you in a way for what's, what's to come. Uh, it, you know, I remember when Andrew, when you showed at the Autry Museum, when you showed the Cowboys, Mark Reddell's, the Cowboys, yeah. that begins with uh, John Williams overture. Uh, and it's just, I, I wish more movies did that. Um, I, I think the last one I saw that did that was um, Melancholia, John, mm-hmm. uh, Lars von Trier's, movie began with an overture he's used overture several times and dancer in the dark and and that one yeah. so it, it's really something um, that, that i miss as a viewer yeah i mean and it's a remnant of a different mode of cinema going where you know, a picture like um how the west was won was you know a large road shown picture that in, especially in its initial engagements would have been shown in very prestigious venues where there's still a kind of gesture toward a longer lineage that takes us back to um, you know, the opera, the concert hall, the theater, and so on. So recognizing the importance of not only having music at the beginning to really set the scene and, and get people in a certain state of mind for what they're about to see, uh, but also repeating that uh, after the intermission with what's called the entre-acte, where you, you once again have this kind of rousing uh, orchestral moment, which was a signal to audiences that it was time to return to the auditorium, but also was to once again get them uh, immersed in what we were about to see. Um, and that uh, just kind of goes away, as did a lot of the uh, affectations of movie going in Hollywood's golden age. Already acclaimed and applauded the world over. In How the West Was Won, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Cinerama have brought together the biggest and most distinguished all-star cast in entertainment history, characterizing the men and women who conquered the wilderness, finding a new life in this immense human saga of the American West. James Stewart is the mountain man. Henry Fonda is the plainsman. Adventurers such as these first explored the land. Then came the settlers who traveled the waterways, like the Prescott family, Carl Malden and Agnes Moorhead. And their daughters, Carol Baker and Debbie Reynolds, who left the frontier for a gayer life. There were the good and the bad. River pirates like Walter Brennan. Notorious desperados like Charlie Gant, portrayed by Eli Wallach. And Lee J. Cobb as the dauntless U.S. Marshal who tracked him down. There were the gamblers and the entertainers. Gregory Peck is Cleve Van Valen, lucky in cards and in love. There was Robert Preston as the wagon master who loved in vain. And Thelma Ritter, a friend in need. Here, too, were the North, Andy Devine. And the South, Russ Tamblin. And the famous of history, John Wayne as General William Tecumseh Sherman. Henry Morgan as General Ulysses S. Grant. And Raymond Massey as Abraham Lincoln. So, Mark, 
Before we let you go, tell us about your latest album, Frontera USA. At the top of the show, I described it as a soundtrack to an imaginary Western. Is that a fairly accurate description, would you say? And where did the idea for this record come from? I would say it was a, it was a great introduction. Thank you very much, Matt. <laughs> where it's not necessarily... I, I could bend the rules a little bit, because this is meant to be uh, a record, an, an album of songs, rather than uh, a genuine soundtrack. And we've talked on the show that if it would if it were a genuine soundtrack there would probably be less songs there'd be more repeated tunes but you know i so i could play around with it a bit more so there's 11 original songs which would be far too many for one movie really but uh, but that's the idea i am um, i almost felt at one point when i was speaking to the musicians and putting the record together was if if we could try and make each song like the main theme song for a different movie so if they were all part of the sort of Western canon, I mostly the sort of 60s sound, is that, okay, this is, let's try and make a song that is so good, this could be the main theme for a different movie for each track. And it was, it was really good fun recording it, and I think that with that in mind, one of the things, you know, I would sort of describe the plot of the imagined movie uh, before we recorded each track. So I'd say, okay, this in this scene, or in this uh, movie. This is where this happens. I, I would describe the scene to them, and whether or not that changed their playing, <laughs> I don't know. I think it. I think it all added to the atmosphere. It was certainly a lot of fun recording it. So we we specifically used all old equipment. I think we cheated a couple of times. I mean, the the digital transfer at the end was cheating, but we recorded all on reel to reel. So the analog tape and using mostly sixties and seventies equipment for everything, where the instruments tend to all the recording processes. And did we need to do it like that? Well, no, but I think it, it was part of the fun of it. It was as close as I can imagine you get to time travel, was being in the studio and making this. You know, it, it was as though we were making our soundtrack in the way that they would have in the period. So it was, it was a, certainly a lot of fun. <laughs> have you played in any of these songs live in concert yet, or is it just um, on the album? Uh, we have, yeah. It sounds it sounds different live. I am one of the things is because, and because we, you know, it's part of the project. It was using the studio, was using sound effects, um. So we, it's a near impossible to create that live without the use of an orchestra and additional sort of foley artists. So it sounds a uh, different live. But I mean, at the heart of them, they are. I guess the idea is, you know, we said this at the top of the show. These are folk songs, really. So, yeah, live, I've played them uh, in different versions live, whether it's, um, you know, just me with a, an acoustic guitar or me with several of the other musicians. We So we have done them live, and uh, but it's always different. The root of it is in a folk song, and how much that transforms has a lot to do with how many musicians are available. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your choice of titles. Uh, so almost every uh, track in the album is named after a a famous, let's say, Western personages, uh, some historical bandits, historical heroes, up to, you know, a contemporary sharpshooter. Um, and yet this, the subject matter of the f songs also varies, sometimes contemporary, sometimes historical, not necessarily corresponding to the title. Um, how did you come up with the the, the names for, for these songs? The names was is trying to imagine a kind of Western character for the songs. And I think that it would be disingenuous of me to say that, you know, that 
the the song is is specifically based on the life of the individual that it's titled from, but it was more about finding a Western character and and making a story or a narrative around that. Most of them are story songs. I don't think there's many that are not a fairly straight narrative, like that is a story. Um, so it is not the lives of the people in the songs, but there was an idea of the character of those people. And like you say, there's a contemporary sharpsuit is Bob Munden is the final track. And that was kind of, and, and you mentioned that not all of it is in terms of the stories of the songs are set in the old West. So some of them are based on contemporary issues, but I think I like the idea that the Western is not necessarily one place in time, you know, that, and I, I think the wild West is, you know, that there was a certain period of time um, round about the American Civil War and the sort of years that followed, that you could say is well that was the Western, but I'm I'm not sure I totally buy into that. I I believe that you can have a Western set now, and I think that it's more about what the West means in terms of a sort of quest for freedom and and the relationship of man versus landscape to an extent. Who designed the albums? cover art it's so amazing it's it's like talk about a, a western movie it looks like a poster oh thank you <laughs> that was me oh wow <laughs> yeah that's that great that was and it was very difficult as well because that is me in the picture so um you know <laughs> i have to pose everything correctly in costume and then set that up set all the lights up then go around behind the camera and check back and forth um to make sure it's all correct what, what why is it all me um, I think I'm a control freak. Is the is the nasty way of saying it? The nice way would say I'm an auteur. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's just that I I I don't control freak does you know I think that is a fairly pejorative term, but it's it's again it's it for me it's more about the fun the fun of it. Why did I have to use all the equipment? Why did I put so many restrictions on terms of what I was doing? Well, it's because these are the things that bring me pleasure, and even though it is. A lot of work to take on doing, you know, everything from the, you know, the writing, the songs to the performing to kind of almost like a director in the studio telling the musicians, okay, this is the atmosphere for this sort of thing to the point where I'm designing and in the artwork. It, it's because it, you know, it's because I, I enjoy this stuff. I wouldn't want somebody else to take that from me. I mean, at a certain point, it's nice to have collaborators, of course, and I and all the other musicians that are involved in this are absolutely adding their own thing and their own skill that I don't have. But I enjoy doing as much as possible because because I enjoy it. I, I, I want to have that fun. Now, as I said earlier, we'll include a link to purchase Frontera USA in the show notes of this episode. And to further entice people to buy it, we're about to play a song from the album as we bring this episode to a close. It's the very first track, titled Robert Leroy Parker. Mark, thanks again for joining us on the show today. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for having me. Chasing the dream of 
that vile western life Whose work on is a him the city of Glasgow I drained my bank account, led the country to closet my wife and hit the road Myself as some outlaw cowboy stuff. But a collapsing face and expanding waste is all time and brain. I had a savings account, but the real price I paid for leaving wasn't bought. wraps up this episode, but before you go, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast, all one word. Tell us your favorite Western film score, or suggest another topic that you'd like us to cover on a future show. Also, if you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, the best way to do that is by subscribing to it on whatever platform you use. 
simply click the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. Thank you.